Welcome to the Euro Intelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. Today we would like to talk about the left, the populist left in Europe and its fate. Susanne, you had a story this morning in our news briefing about the fate of Syriza. It, ha it has elected a new leader, someone we didn't know. <laughs> Tell us the story. Uh, yes. Uh, so this morning's story was about Syriza. Uh, our listeners might remember Syriza from the days uh, of the bailout uh, programs in Greece. Um, Alexis Tsipras was just taking this party from the far left as a protest party into government. And that happened on this wing of this anti-austerity movement. That was a huge movement and it had so much momentum going on at that time. And he, ha he was the symbol of that uh, movement. Even in government, he actually persevered to, to keep this narrative going. And we've, we've seen the, the referendum in 2015, where the referendum was clearly insisting that uh, to end the austerity measures and wanting him to negotiate accordingly. But he, in, in the negotiations with the Troika, he uh, caved in. Uh, but still, he, he was not taken accountable for it. He, he just managed to squeeze through these kind of uh, momentums. And the narrative of the left as an anti-austerity movement was united. We could see that uh, throughout Europe. We have the indignant movement. We had it in several countries. It was this uprising Trend and which is worked very well on the populist left. Now these times are over, and Alexis Tsipras, since 2019, he 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 tried to, to challenge the new democratic government, but couldn't. As a consequence, he resigned, and out of nowhere came Stefanos Kasselakis from Florida. He organized an, a well-oiled campaign on social media in this leadership contest for Syriza. And to the surprise of many supporters, he actually won this contest. He won it with also a lot of new members. He had got a lot of new members all of a sudden subscribing ahead of this leadership contest. So clearly there was a campaign coming. It came, but also it went. So what happened in the last couple of weeks, we saw that these supporters who just came up with the social media campaigning also went. The series polling results are falling. They, they didn't win or they had only a very minor supporting role in the regional elections. And of most importantly, he, he cannot do what he wants to do with the party that it is. It's very fragmented. You have the core old Syriza very seriously challenging his, his leadership and blaming um, the misfortunes of the party on him. He, on the other hand, and his team, which he picked amongst his supporters, argue that we need to put this whole party into a new context. Context. The political context has changed, so we need a new program. The problem is that, that Kasselakis doesn't, we don't actually know what he stands for. And initially you were selling this as a, as, a, as a win, as something that is actually an asset. But the more time it goes on, the more it actually turns into a, a liability. So whether or not Zirica can uh, persevere or actually remain together, uh, that's, that's going to be the battle for the next couple of weeks. And we see some fractions, possibility of a split is likely. What will remain? We don't know whether actually Kasselakis can remain as the head of the Syriza. I mean, there were calls that he should quit and get his own party. Uh, which, which is, and what will happen with the, the, the descenders, whether they can matter. Uh, so far, they're still 15%. Well, they're 15% now in the polls. Uh, 
far behind new democracy. So there is no question that they could challenge new democracy. I mean, it's interesting because I kind of, you know, thinking back at it, there's no real precedent for the Kasselakis thing, kind of not only within the European left, but, but within like broader European politics. Like when a new kind of outsider challenger politician, like a total outsider comes in, they, they typically do it with their own political movement, which then ends up cannibalizing another one. The closest cases I could think of to what Kasselakis has done with Syriza are, uh, you know, Ellie Schlein uh, recently with the PD in Italy, kind of left-wing challenger candidate who unexpectedly won their leadership election. Uh, and then, of course, Jeremy Corbyn with the Labour Party in 2015. But even then, I think it's different because those two figures at least had some sort of, they, they have positions of responsibility within the party at some level or another. And they also represented institutionalized bases within their parties. Schlein was part of the regional government in Bologna and was representing the PD in that capacity. Jeremy Corbyn, of course, had been an MP for decades by the time he ended up becoming labor leader. Both of them represented kind of left-wing factions within their respective parties, whereas Kasilakis, there's kind of no real, almost like you could say, he would either need, I think, to have been a representative of a tendency within Syriza, or he would have needed to find one to latch onto. It seems to me, just looking from the outside in, that Kasilakis' big problem was that there was no group within the party that was already established that he was representing. That is probably true. And that yet he had supporters in Syriza who were seeing in him the chance of rebooting Syriza and writing actually a new kind of program and manual of how to put Syriza more towards the center out of this protest idea of being the protest party into something that is more serious. The transformation that we've also seen with Marine Le Pen, she is no longer the French parliament. She's no longer the opposing protesting party as they used to be screaming uh, every time and again when there's a proposal something against, but actually appearing uh, to be the responsible party. And I think maybe that is a desire in, 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 in factions of Syriza who want to be seen as the, ser the serious kind of contender in an election and trying to figure out on which platform they're going to do that. Because Kazalakis doesn't come with any baggage. Uh, he was this projection screen for whatever these people would, uh, would like them to be. But the problem now is to, f to find how diverse these projections are and he that he's not the one who can consolidate these visions, at least for now. We will see tonight, uh, he's going to speak at the Economist Forum. We will see more what he has to say. Maybe there has something more substance. But at the moment, these were just sound bites. And it's, it, it, it's, it looked like a flash mob. He came under, onto the scene. He won the elections with this campaigning, but easily he lost all of this. Uh, also in popularity, he's now really far behind some minor figures in the polls. Yeah, and I, I think I think as well the sentiment maybe that Kasilakis represents. And the sentiment that drove him there also speaks to wider malaise amongst left-wing parties in Europe. We can all obviously remember about a decade or so ago in the aftermath of the global financial crisis and you know, the kind of advent of austerity politics when that, that was actually in many parts of Europe quite a good time to be a left-wing politician. You had these kinds of insurgent left-wing movements that in many cases did quite well. In, in Greece, obviously, Syriza became the government. In Spain, Podemos emerged. And they became a major political force in France as well. Um, when Jean-Luc Mélenchon started to come back to prominence, you had a kind of reinvigoration of the far left in France, decades after 
being part of Mitterrand's like coalition government pretty much annihilated them in the 1980s. Now I think it's come to a point where they have not been the big beneficiaries of the structural political shifts that have happened as a result of those events about a decade or so ago. Instead, the people that have managed to basically entrench themselves are the right-wing populists. The left are largely kind of in a bit of a complicated situation. I think one of those complications with parties like Syriza is how to broaden their appeal and how to kind of maintain a certain degree of ideological commitment while also seeming serious and responsible. And I think another one is the the extent to which you should be cooperating with other left-wing or center-left tendencies in your own country versus going it on your own. And and that's kind of the story of what's happened in both France and Spain with left-wing parties. France, of course, the big shift in the left recently has been been the grouping of these left-wing parties into new well noop nupes there have been different pronunciation standards of this along the way but the point is you had a kind of broad alliance of parties that are generally to the left of Emmanuel Macron's supporters working together, especially in the legislative elections last year, to kind of achieve something and and give the left a stronger voice in French politics. Now, the problem, of course, and you can maybe add a little bit more to this, Suzanne, is that um, there are three broad kind of groupings within the French left, right? You have Jean-Luc Mélenchon and La France Insoumise. So you have the kind of, I guess you could say the, the far left there, but also um, they incorporate, say, Euroscepticism, which on occasion has been a feature of the far left elsewhere in Europe, too. That That's kind of difficult for the other groups to swallow. And then the, the other two groupings that you have are Greens, you know, Les Ecolos in France, and then you have the centre-left Parti Socialiste, which has fallen uh, quite a long way in the last uh, decade or so, right? And it's become very, very difficult for these parties to work together, especially, I think, but not, not exclusively on the question of European integration, these parties are quite far. Then then in Spain, the difficulty with Podemos was entering a coalition government with the center-left socialist party and figuring out how to maintain their identity while also getting things done within the coalition. It didn't help that there was a lot of factional infighting within uh, Podemos. And eventually, the entire thing became so dysfunctional that now Podemos effectively does not exist. What happened was that one a member originally of the Communist Party of Spain, Yolanda Diaz, who was part of Podemos's broader electoral alliance, became well she she was labor minister right in the last government and she's kind of the current acting labor minister she eventually rose to prominence she took quite a different tack one that was much more i I guess you could say pragmatic and conciliatory in the process of doing so she started up a new movement sumar and sumar effectively absorbed podemos well the first thing they did was they squashed podemos and then they absorbed them that's kind of where we've gotten to with spain where you have this kind of broad front of the left but it's increasingly unclear as to the extent to which they are distinguished from the Socialist Party, their coalition partners. It almost kind of feels like Sumar in this perma-coalition with the socialist sort of situation. And you can survive like that in some countries. Left-wing parties in Scandinavia do that all the time. But it can be a little bit difficult for you to maintain your own image and really get your supporters energized about whatever your project is. I think what you're seeing in Germany right now is a kind of a departure from all of this. So I think the stories that you've been talking about in Greece or in, in France or in Spain or in Italy were basically more of the same. There were splits. I mean, you know, people people disagree and from their own parties or from their own movements and then they absorb the other one or they launch a leadership coup and become leaders of that party. But none of them is is particularly known for any original ideas. 
it is basically the same old left-wing policy mix with slightly different packaging. What we saw in Germany this week with the launch of a new left-wing party by the politician Zara Wagenknecht is of a different nature. I have to say I disagree with pretty much everything she says, but I take it seriously for the reason that, A, she is a serious politician and she is coming up with a different agenda from the other, from the actually existing left-wing party, or the, it's called the left party. The left party is not fundamentally different from the left parties in other countries. It's a bit tired, it's lost in the polls, it's, it's divided like most of these parties are, but Sagenknecht came up with a very different agenda, where you would even question whether you call it off the left or off the right. In fact, I don't think you can actually classify it any longer. Since she's traditionally from the left, that's where most sort of political, lazy political analysts would put her. She's anti-immigration, that's, a, that's for, for starters. She is anti-weapons deliveries to Ukraine. So these are basically positions you could just as much associate with Viktor Orban or Robert Fico. She wants to reopen the pipelines. She didn't mention the name of the pipeline, but there are the only pipelines that I can think of that have been closed that <laughs> would be the Nord Stream pipelines. Obviously, you can't really just reopen them because they've been blown up. You actually have to rebuild them. But in, obviously, that that's possible. It's just like, you know, it, takes, it would take a while. So it, it's, it's technically possible. Should, should she ever come into government, it would be break with, with the EU. She is not particularly interested in the EU. She is interested in maintaining, she is what I would call a super neo-mercantilist. There has been sort of a German neo-mercantilist tradition with Schroeder and Merkel and pretty much everybody there. That you, you run large surpluses against the rest of the world, you maintain reasonable but distant relationships with those dictators. Merkel was sort of in that reasonable but distant you know, part, whereas Schroeder was best buddies with Putin arrangement, but she, she kept a critical distance with Xi and with Putin, but kept good relationships with them. And Wagenknecht would be very much of the same nature, but only more extremely so. So she would actually do this now, whereas I don't think Merkel would at this point be friends with Putin. She would at this point not be in that camp. She would have changed her position just as Steinmeier, the German president, changed his position, just as Scholz changed position, just pretty much everybody in leadership has changed position on Ukraine. Uh, Wagenknecht is of a very different uh, nature. And her appeal goes to the industrial workers who are about to lose their jobs. Many of them are about to lose their jobs because there is a, a degree of deindustrialization going on in Germany, of which there are two pathways. It can either be stopped by the government through you know, subsidies, and that's clearly under discussion now, uh, in a big electricity price subsidy. But that won't stop the rot. This is just, it would delay the rot. It would actually stop the adjustment and delay the rot. It would pretty much pile up all the problems later on. But no matter how this adjustment happens, it, it's, it's good for her. And, and, and her policy would be a radical approach, a radical return to the sort of pre, pre-pandemic era. And that is currently not on offer from any other party. And some people say this party is actually right. And some people say it's left. And I, I think it's neither. And I think it's something where we have to sort of also think about our way of classifying political parties is no longer about uh, the classic left-right issues. The bill cited, they called her the concrete uh, socialist, which was uh, found an, an well, interesting... Con- concrete as in, as in cement. Cement, cement, <laughs> cement socialist. I found that was an, a very interesting observation. One of the other features of her is also that 
she's a do- she has a doctorate in economics, which is not like any icon on the, on the left. She certainly inspires some imagination of Rosa Luxemburg, but definitely there's also some some meat to the bone for for those who might actually go after her economic credentials in that sense. And for the Germans, that's quite important if you really want to win uh, middle class people, not only the workers but also company owners, uh, small company owners that might actually be interested in what she has to offer. The other observation I have. It's really interesting because what we've seen in the last decade was the other way around, that the far right went to pick from the left the programs and became sort of a socialist, had socialist versions of what the far right is. It was sort of no to migration, but yes to social programming, purchasing power support, far right offer. Of course, there is also a liberal version of it in Europe, but that was definitely the winning formula for Marine Le Pen. And now we see Sarah Wagenknecht coming up from the left, picking from the far right, the no to, to migration, uh, and, and integrating it in her kind of own version or own uh, concoction of uh, program. And coming back to the French version, probably all of those examples, for me, what the question comes up is what, how does radicality expresses itself? The anti-austerity was a context. Uh, it was a context in which uh, radicality could be expressed as a movement, an anti-movement. We had anti-nuclear. I mean, the Greens came up with the anti-nuclear in the 1980s, 1990s. Now, this was like a circumstantial. It, it, yes, it was pushed, but it was also kind of circumstantial in the sense that we had Chernobyl in, in that time. So there were things happening at the time that actually accelerated um, the need for such a shift. And anti-austerity just happened to be in the time when Tsar uh, Alexis Tsipras was ready to to move with this with this lot around what radicality for Mélenchon, for example, this comes now to a head where the, the new fall apart over the radicality of Jean-Luc Mélenchon when it comes to Hamas, the, the war with Israel. But there you can see the classic uh, distinction between the socialists and the Greens who do not. Definitely the socialists who don't want to be associated with this kind of radicality of taking sides with Hamas in that sense. The left as well, in terms of foreign policy, they will be extremely challenged in this time where the the conflict between Palestinians and Israel was so defining. It was like an identity thing in the 1980s. I don't know what Wagenknecht's position is to the Middle East. I can see what's going on in Russia. I mean, there the other left has less of of an issue or an identity crisis, but it's it's it, again the circumstances will shape the way how the left will go about. Yeah, I think her policies on the on the Middle East have shifted. She was vehemently pro-Palestine in the you know ten years ago, fifteen years ago. That was sort of a classic position of the left she's taken. Now she is vehemently pro-Israel. So it's interesting. So you're seeing a, a break from a classic left position, which would be pro pro Palestine or even pro Hamas in, in some cases, position or at least a, that expresses an understanding for Hamas uh, terror and would not describe it as terror, would describe it in other in, in other way. She's completely different in that respect. But there is a there is this is where her populism comes in. Also with her sort of neo, neo-mercantilism, she wants cheap energy, but she wants expensive wages because she doesn't like him. Her, her argument on immigration is an economic one. Her argument is that immigrants depress the wage level. But you can't have it both ways. You cannot have high wages and and export surpluses. And so, so there is an incoherence in this argument which has not been examined in the public debate. Yeah, so to kind of add on onto that a bit with Wagenknecht, so firstly on the question of whether she is left-wing or right-wing or unclassifiable. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the impression I've always gotten from Wagenknecht herself 
is that she would always describe herself as left wing. Oh, oh, you know, she would. She, she, like herself, kind of her herself identification within this is left wing, and I think Wagenknecht's argument would be that being left wing or right wing is fundamentally about economic and class interests. To be left wing is to want a certain set of economic policies in the interests of a certain class or group of people. Uh, that would be, I, generally speaking, the way that she sees it. The point is to kind of basically demarcate what she sees as the real left-wing stuff from other issues that have, I guess, in that kind of telling, become associated with the left over time. Certain positions on immigration, certain positions on foreign policy. And that would be the argument that she would make. The other thing I wanted to say is, aside from maybe picking up votes from industrial workers who are scared of losing their job, I think, and this is kind of partly based on looking at the way that this has gone in other countries, there might also be a constituency among basically older people and especially retirees who have kind of stayed in these industrial towns. One of the things, and I think you'll be familiar with this if you've been to or if you're from a place that used to have some sort of big industry and no longer does, is that when that industry leads, the place kind of generally degrades. Younger people move out, services start to get worse you start to see more signs of urban deprivation and so on and so forth. So even if you're there and as an individual or a household quite materially comfortable, it's not pleasant to be in that kind of environment. Yeah, no, you see this in Germany where, and also these are places, these de-industrialized places, for example, in the rural area, Duisburg, Essen, Dortmund, places like that. Well, they, they are the ones that have seen most of the immigration in Germany and certainly visible on the you know, in public transport when you drive through those areas. You know, I, I often go from Düsseldorf through Dortmund and further east. And whenever I'm there, you find German is almost it's no longer spoken. It's mostly a mixture of Russian and um, Arabic and Turkish. And it's so that that has changed in the last five years in terms of the sort of the mix, the mix of people. This is an area that has suffered from the industrialization. It's going to suffer from denationalization a bit more. I would disagree, however, with you on her characterization of, she certainly characterizes herself as left, but it's not about, uh, it's not the old class struggle. It really is something different. It's same with her, her husband, Oscar Lafontaine. Part of his career was on the, you know, the leader of the SPD. And then after his resignation from both his leader and his finance minister under, under Gerhard Schröder, Lafontaine then later joined the left party and became its leader and also resigned in, in protest. And these are, these are fundamental differences he has. For example, I, I can remember Lafontaine before Schröder even proposing a reform of the welfare system to get rid of welfare payments, uh, of automatic welfare payments to people who do not have a employment. So he can be extremely tough and almost right-wing in terms of some of the... These are not just policies I associate with the right. These are actually policies for which the left, which are very intrinsic to the left in terms of the relationship between workers and shareholders, if you want to see. There is, in Germany, a sort of a tripartite thing. The, you know, that's why the left-right doesn't work, because you have industry, which is... Obviously, you have the wealthy classes, the investors... But but you have industry as separate from them because they are mostly a mixture of politics, trade unions, and industrialists who are basically almost a class in themselves, you know, and, and the workers. So you have these three groups. And she is very much in this sort of institutional and this industrial group. She's clearly not for the shareholders. I can, you know, I agree with that. That would actually be the center, the liberals who would focus on the small companies, capital, markets, banks. Uh, that's not her. That's not her game. But 
But I think the positions are largely incoherent. If you were to, even if you wanted to go back to the old world, which I don't think is technically or politically possible anymore, but even if you wanted to you know, repair the pipeline and, and, and get back to the old industrial world, I think it would be more of a, I don't want to classify this as, you know, for me, it's not right wing either. It's something, you know, I find it's unclassifiable. It's not driven by the working class or a, a particular, a particular the, the working class matters to her as a pool of votes. But then again, the working class also is a pool of votes for the far right. And in fact, that's where the far right gets most of its increase of, of its support came from the working classes. The left and the right are not distinguishing themselves in terms of the class interests or the social strata interests they, rep uh, they represent. They distinguish themselves in terms of a policy mix that with, through which there is kind of a perfect competition game. I mean, she is anti-immigration, pro-Russia, others are anti-immigration, but anti-Russia. So you, you can pretty much pick your party on uh, your preferences are represented somewhere. I think it's a question of proximity to the people. I remember that after the, the, the fall of the Berlin uh, yeah, it was the old socialist party who went to the neighborhoods and uh, introduced knitting parties while the SPD was holding these huge congresses and courses and rhetoric and um, all these kind of things that the people didn't reach the people in the working classes. So it's a question how, how close you get to the people in their everyday life uh, experiences and what sort of message of hope do you have to offer to them? I mean, the same is true for Marine Le Pen. She was her campaign to the presidential elections. She went through all these towns and villages shaking hands, not actually because she wanted to, but because she didn't have the money to campaign in the big aura. In the end, it turned out to be a blessing because that's where her, um, that's where she got her, her voters from, from this campaign. And who knows how far it's, it's getting there. But somehow when you start with these um, proximity things where you actually take interest in the everyday lives of people, that's where um, the stronghold of Uh, the far right or the populist uh, votes can be. Yeah, a kind of uh, pop populism to its most extreme effect. I, you know, I, I think then kind of the, the question for these kinds of movements that combine left-wing economics with these more right-wing social ideas and stuff is, I guess, fundamentally the viability and sustainability of the policy mix that they're proposing and whether they run it a road at some point. I just think about the experience in the UK after Brexit, and to a certain extent, there was this like Brexit coalition that also kind of voted for the Conservatives under Boris Johnson in the 2019 election, made up of the, the kind of classic um, UK political analyst term was the Red Wall. So these uh, towns predominantly in the north of England where you know they, they used to be industrial now they're not and then the kind of idea was that you would be able to do things when you left the EU like you know industrially revitalize these places spend more money on public services there and limit immigration which a lot of people seem very worried about despite the fact that there weren't really very many immigrants there but in each of these cases though it's proven very difficult to actually realize that in practice the uk that the current government is still struggling to really figure out what it's going to do about immigration you look at these towns places like i mean i'm thinking about places like i don't know Redcar or or rotherham or or even some larger cities that have fallen a bit on hard times like stoke in the midlands where there used to be these big kind of primary industries in the town right those industries went and you kind of ask yourself well 
what's really going to replace them? And there's no answer for that. So you're kind of in a situation where you've made these promises and they're to a certain extent, I don't want to say like undeliverable, but the people who are now in a position to deliver them are clearly not sold on the trade-offs required to deliver them. I think they're somebody like Wagner Connect in a, in a, hypoc- in a hypothetical situation where they, where they get to power or, or even somebody like Mélenchon in France. What are they actually going to do about this? Are they kind of feeding almost like a nice palliative story to their voters? And it means that everybody can almost kind of live in their own little world where they don't have to acknowledge the reality of the situation. And I mean, fundamentally for our body politic, is that healthy? Oh, absolutely not. And uh, I completely agree. The populism where they were in government have failed. You see, there's an, I would call the 2000 Boris Johnson Sunak episode as one of populisms. British voting system doesn't deliver far-right parties or Brexit parties into the parliament, but it delivers large majorities for the, the centrist parties, but the populist wings of them. This has not been a successful administration. We've just seen that the Polish government lost after eight years in power. This was a populist government of the right, could not sustain its support. Maloney is still going strong, but as you, Jack, write pretty much every week, the writing is on the wall <laughs> for her too. Uh, yeah, also also Maloney has had to kind of, shall we say, ditch a lot of her more populist... Uh... Absolutely, and that's another way. But that's the question. Uh, how can you maintain a, a protest narrative as something that's an anti-narrative at the same yeah. time as you take responsibility for policies that actually have, are based on compromise? And when you are part of, especially when you're part of the Eurozone, you have no choice but to make compromises on certain things to to face the reality of these choices. I think these are the two levels. And in that sense, I found Tsipras was quite a talent as a politician because he could actually maintain both at the same time. I mean, of course, the time was running out for him eventually, but it was it was impressive enough that he could maintain these two realities. I mean, he was courting the you know, European socialists as well, uh, because he wanted to be part of them rather than uh, the radical lefts. So he was always in between the different stools, not really being caught or not being stuck in any of those corners. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and to your point about kind of being against things and then having to decide what you're for eventually, I, I, I think the other thing that kind of de- demarcates, or I, I wouldn't say demarcates, but defines a lot of these kind of movements, the ones that we've just talked about in Germany or France, or even in the UK is kind of fundamentally a zero sum mentality. It's always to a certain extent, somebody else is getting something that you deserve and that they don't. Whether it's the you know metropolitan left that Wagenknecht goes on about, whether it's this kind of cities versus the towns that became a theme of UK politics, and whether it's uh, any numerous undeserving people that you can point to in French politics, it's always about kind of, you've not gotten your fair share and somebody else is. To a certain extent, I think it's a real problem because it's part of almost a, a retreat of positive sum narratives. And then that becomes quite difficult to sustain because what you find is that you're just kind of fighting over a shrinking uh, you know, a, a shrinking resource base, so to speak. You kind of continually have to come up with some new way to angle this as the overall size of whatever you have to distribute keeps on falling. Then, you know, 
I mean, fu- fundamentally, our kind of way of life here in the West and our economic well-being and stuff is built on the idea that we can do things in a positive some way, that, you know, rising tides can lift all boats. And, um, you know, as you start to go away from that and you build your rhetoric on this kind of alternative, then you end up in a position where you have less and less and you kind of need to continue finding something different and finding some new undeserving group of people to, to demarcate yourself against, to, to placate people who are also suffering from that shrinking set of resources. No, I agree. I agree. It's the Western, it's not only a populist issue. It's a, unfortunately, Western politics has become much more of a redistributive and less of a wealth creating engine. Our productivity levels, productivity growth rates have fallen everywhere and redistribution is now the main game in town. The good news is that populists, when they get to power, they don't succeed. When they do succeed, it's probably in places where you wouldn't call them populist anymore in places like Hungary. You would not call the main characteristic of Viktor Orban is not that he's a populist, but that he's a a dictator. (laughs) I could say. Yeah, yeah. I was was about to say. and uh, and, say this, yeah. We're not... not, Yeah, yeah. And Hungary Hungary is quite a unique case. So there's a different, different different story and would also not call the president of China a populist, even though they might be characterized like this here in Europe. Um, On that note, I'd like to end and thank you for listening. Until next week.